Good morning. So good to see you. I feel cool with that video. I normally don't feel cool, but that video just makes me feel cool. Um, I have to be honest. I'm just like, man, I feel really cool right now. My wife should see me because I'm just channeling it. And um, anyways, my name is Chris. Um, For some of you, uh, you recognize me. For some of you, you've never seen me before. Um, I was on staff here at Taylor's and was middle school minister and then student minister, uh, as Paul said earlier, for six and a half years. And which meant for six and a half years, I had no clue what I was doing. And you were incredibly patient with me as I tried to figure out what it looked like to be a leader. And for some of you, I just let me offer a blanket statement. I'm sorry. Okay. Just being real. I'm sorry. I would be a better leader now if I was here. But because of you, I'm a better leader now where I am because of your patience and your love and your support and your prayers. And um, I don't get the opportunity to speak a lot outside of the context where I live right now because we're still in the midst of planting and and kind of building a church in that community. But this was one of those opportunities where when Paul mentioned it, I jumped at it because uh, this is home. Not not the location, um, but the people of God and the heartbeat of this church and that Jason and I were made here. And you called, you, you called us on staff, you supported us, and then you did the even bolder step of sending us out. And that through that period, you loved my daughter, you discipled her, some of you rocked her and prayed over her. And for that, and for countless other reasons, on behalf of the seven families that left this place so that this church could begin a work in the Boston area, I say thank you. And I say I love you. And I look forward to what's encouraging to me is that um, I wish I could just hang out and hug every single one of your necks, even if it's awkward. And, um, but I know that I get heaven with you and that we get to be a part of um, filling up heaven where we live. And, uh, and so it's incredibly humbling. The last year and a half, I think as someone's recently captured it, my wife, um, Jenny uh, uh, runs the preschool area for Encounter Church. And so at the end of one of the days, they were going around in their small groups and they were praying. And one of, uh, one of the little girls who moved from here to, um, to Boston uh, in the course of their prayer said, God, thank you for moving my family to Massachusetts. And it's just, I, I loved, Jenny came home. She's like, came out of the heart of a five-year-old little girl who just could just sense what God's doing. And in a context in an area where we live less than, it's 1.69% evangelical in the um, county I live in. And uh, there will be more Southern Baptist in this room this morning than there will be all over that county of 700,000 people today. And, uh, and it's just this incredibly humbling thing to think in a place where the average church is 20 to 40 people that at, uh, we, we're currently averaging around 140. And that at Easter, we saw 236 people show up. And, and for you to know, that's not an encounter church story. That's a Taylor's First Baptist Church story. Because we are out of this movement and out of this work of God in this community called Taylor's First Baptist. And um, God has done a lot in the last year and a half and is working and moving and stirring in us. But um, in the course of all the celebration, there's also been conflict and there's been pushback. And 
one of the opportunities that opened was uh, we were told we can't meet in the school anymore, that we were causing too much of an issue for the school board and the pressure they were getting from a small group of individuals who were threatening to sue them. And so they gave us a time period to say, you've got to leave, which meant that the, all the largest meeting spaces in our community was off the table overnight. And uh, we kind of went into a period of kind of praying and saying, God, what do you want us to do? There's nowhere else to meet in this community and stay portable, where we set up on Sunday morning and tear down uh, for church for us is um, the guys picking up the trailers a little bit before 7 and us filling the trailer back up around 1.30. And we were, there was no place to do that, which meant we were going to have to leave our community and go to a new space and a new place, which meant all the work, all the people, because on any given Sunday morning, we may have half the people in that audience are not Christians. And we were going to have to go, and they probably weren't going to come with us. And so we took a gutsy move, and you saw that in the video, that there was this building that was kind of just hovering. And that's, the, that's our next chapter, that we decided, God, we know you're not done here. And even though it is incredibly ridiculous for a church of a year old to think about being permanent, we're going to step out, and we're going to um, lease this space, and we're going to build out a space and create a church that um, in September of this year, 400 people can be there on a Sunday morning. And in that location is even a more strategic spot than where we are now. Within 20 minutes, almost a million people can drive to that spot. In a county and in a context with 1.69% evangelical, we're watching God redefine and shatter the box of, that people have about church and about Jesus. And so... I'm going to shut up because I could sit here and talk all morning about you and what God's doing through you there. But I want to kind of press into kind of the how, not just the what of Encounter Church, but out of this text, the how we've been doing it and on this Reach Sunday, how we can do it. That as a, a people, you've been working through the book of Luke. And I want to jump into chapter 7 of the book of Luke and look at six verses that show us how to be a people that reach out. Because in this very short section, Jesus models for us a pattern, an example that we can replicate in our everyday lives. That Jesus, in the course of these six verses, in his exchange and interchange, um, he gives us instructions for how to be a people who reach out. Uh, in Luke 7, verse 11, it starts with, Soon afterward, he, being Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So you kind of set the backdrop. Uh, Jesus has started his ministry. He's at this point in, in the course of the three years, he's now a regional celebrity. Um, he's, have, he's in the process of this preaching tour around the Lake of Galilee, and as he's preaching and moving and speaking, people are starting to follow him. So with each town that he's visiting, the crowds are getting larger, the disciples are getting deeper, and, and there's this kind of groundswell happening. And as Jesus is moving around the Lake of Galilee and his preaching tour and this regional kind of movement that becomes known as Christianity, um, Jesus approaches this town called Nain. And Nain is an interesting place because Nain... Um, has on the other side of the hill from its location that it was the site for some of the ministry of Elisha. And Elijah and Elisha were the kind of the famous prophets who had lived a few hundred years before this moment. And this was the site just a few miles away from here where Elisha raises a widow's son from the dead. And so this area kind of has a rich religious history. 
And it's in that moment, as Jesus is walking up, that we see this guy named Luke capturing all of it. Luke's the writer of this book. Luke, in fact, writes 27% of the New Testament. He creates a two-volume set, one volume being the book of Luke, the other volume being the book of Acts. He's doing all of this to help help someone grow in the faith, a guy named Theophilus, who's a Gentile, who's an outsider, who wouldn't have grown up with the Jewish understanding of the Messiah. And here he is, he's writing this letter, and he's helping him grow in his faith in Almost 2,000 years later, we're growing in our faith because of a letter, because of Luke being willing to sit down and disciple someone. And it's the power of just this one-on-one relationship that spills into this story and what we see that plays out. Uh, Jesus, as he's walking with this great crowd and his disciples, it says, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who, who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. To kind of set the scene, Jesus is building this crowd with him as he's walking, and he turns the corner, and there's the city gate, and a crowd is headed toward him. And it's a modern-day funeral procession. Right? It's, it, it kind of disrupts his typical service, the way that a modern-day funeral procession does for us when we're driving down the road, and we see the lights on, and we see that car in the front. We kind of just pull off to the side of the road, and this is what's happening. For Jesus, that he sees a crowd. But Luke, Luke's a Gentile. Luke grew up outside of the Jewish faith too. And Luke happens to spend a bulk of his adult life traveling with Paul and watching God do incredible things around and in people who were never considered to be a part of the faith. They were never one of those people that would have ever thought God cared about him. And Luke wants to draw attention to this story because Jesus noticed people that other people didn't notice. And Paul noticed people. Paul spent his life going to people that people had ignored with the message of hope that Jesus had. And Luke wants to draw attention to this interchange. And in this interchange, what happens is a switch that you and I could start to put into practice in our own lives today. Notice that Jesus saw her and had compassion on her. And said to her, do not weep. You see, she's, as Luke is pointing out, this woman's kind of precarious position in life. She's, her son's died, but she's a widow. She isn't just crying and weeping because she's in the front, in the front of the funeral procession for her son. She's crying and weeping because her life, as she knows it, is done. There is no social security system. There is no welfare structure. There is nothing to support this woman. She goes home, and she is going to quickly be in a place where the only way she gets food is she's begging. And so she's weeping because it's not just her son. It's her life that's done. And Jesus does something. He sees her. It's not that Jesus just showed up with passion for people. He had a heartbeat for the world. That's an easy thing to say. But what Jesus does that is instructive for us is he doesn't just have passion for people. He has compassion for a person. He sees her. The crowd's behind her, but he sees her. And this broken, disenfranchised, depressed state, he sees her and he acts. He walks up and he says, don't weep. Don't cry. And Jesus walks to where she is and disrupts his schedule, his preaching tour, 
that was meant, built around passion for people because he had compassion for a person. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we got hit with about two feet of snow in the course of four days. And I recognize that here, this would be considered a state of emergency and people would be on top of the houses and there would be helicopters lifting people out and it would be pretty significant. Um, for us, we call that great sledding, right? And so I have a five-year-old little girl who is beautiful and got everything from her mom, and we're grateful for that. And we're like, okay, she's five. She can go down the big hills now. Because when you're little, you don't want to terrify them. So you're like, oh, you're like, oh, that was great, right? And it's just, I mean, they dropped the foot. And um, so we're like, all right, we're going to take her to the big hill today. And about a mile from our house is a massive hill. And so we get our sled, we show up, and um, Ella's a little nervous, and we put her on the front, and, um, and, and Jenny kind of sits down with her, and because she's at least intuitive enough to realize physics and says, if the big dude gets on, we go faster. And so she wants mom, and so mom grabs on, and they go down. And I kind of run down the hill with them, kind of, you know, to celebrate, like, Ella's first significant sled ride. And Ella kind of gets to the bottom, and she's like, my tummy felt funny. Let's do it again. I'm like, that's probably not a good idea. And, um, and so we start to walk back up. This is a large hill. And she takes a step, and then she falls. And she fights to get up. It's kind of awkward because it's two feet of snow. So imagine pushing your hand in the two feet of snow trying to get up with all the, like, the snow gear that she has on. And so she's waddling, waiting, gets up, takes another step, falls again in her face into the snow. And I'm like, we're going to sled twice today because this is going to take forever to get back up top of this hill. And Jenny's right in front of her and walking, and I said, Ella, I want you to step in Mommy's footprints because if you step in Mommy's footprints, you can walk all the way up the hill without falling. And as I was saying that, Jenny was already doing what leaders do. She was adjusting and taking smaller steps. And my daughter was able to walk up that entire hill without face planning the entire way because there were steps there for her to step in. And watching my daughter walk up this monstrosity of a hill for her, this thing that would have been impossible for her to cover the gap. I, I'm sitting there, and I am like, this is what it looks like to be the church or to be the people of God that reach out. We go to where people are, and we adjust our life and our pace for where they are spiritually. That we don't scream, we don't stand on this side and say, hey, come over here or tell them why they're doing it wrong or why they're not good enough for it. We go to where they are and we walk with them. And we take small steps knowing that they're following in our footprints because we're leading them towards something. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. He goes to where this woman is. He disrupts his schedule and he meets her in the place that she is. And maybe you're here today and you're in this church context, but you know inside that you, a neighbor's invited you, a friend's invited you, you're growing up here and you're like, I don't know where I stand with faith. Or maybe you're here and you're like, there's a lot of things in my life that I need to get better, that I need to work on, and then I'll kind of get, I'll get my life set and then I'll show up and, I, and I'll get my faith set. And for you, I would just encourage you, even out of this text, that he meets you where you are. He doesn't ask you to come where he is. That you don't have to wait to get your life together to know Jesus. Jesus already knows you and is willing to meet you where you are and to help walk you into a place that you could never imagine being on your own. 
that this is the God we serve, and this is the example that we should follow. Not just a God who has passion for people, but compassion for a person. But he doesn't stop there. That's just one shift. In verse 14, he, in response to telling her, do not weep, he came up and he touched this, this bed that this body is laying on that the men would have been carrying. And it says that when he walked up, the kind of the, the bearers, this, the ones carrying this, this bed that the son's body is laying on top of, they stand still. And it says that Jesus looks up and says, young man, I say to you, arise. He's like, get up. Which is a really risky move for Jesus. A Jewish person did not walk up to a dead person and touch him. It would have been ceremonially unclean. It would have defiled him. His schedule, his life would have been thrown into chaos because of all the religious, religious rituals and steps he'd had to take to be okay and clean again. Jesus takes a risk. He steps into this very uncomfortable place because he knows something that no one else there knows. And I think it, Luke kind of gives you an indication of what's happening. Remember, he's an outsider. He, he gets to know Jesus before he knows the Jewish faith, and it just kind of spills out of him. In verse 13, right before he writes this, he calls Jesus Lord. First time, first time that the word Lord is stated in the book of Luke. And I think it's just because Luke is writing, recounting the story because of the eyewitness accounts and the research he did, and it just spills out. It's this leading indicator of what's about to happen because Jesus says, get up, and he gets up. He pops up. And Luke's like, there's something different about him, and he's Lord. It's not just that we step into lives of people with compassion. It's that we step into the lives of one because we know there is a risen son. And that that power that raised Jesus from the dead that was present inside of him that day when he touched and interrupted that funeral procession is the same power that lives inside of us if we're Christ followers. So in September, getting ready to celebrate our year, and I'm starting to think through messaging and how to continue to unpack a lot of theological things because the story with Ella is how we do church. We walk slowly. We walk methodically because we're leading people. And, and so I was sitting there watching on a couch when I was watching a documentary, because um, I'm still a nerd, and it was a documentary on uranium. And it was this incredibly fascinating documentary. It was a four-part series, and I watched them all. And, um, and as I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this documentary on uranium, and uranium is an element. It was an element that's used um, for a couple different reasons. It's used in the medical industry, but it's kind of famous for being used in nuclear reactors, right, for nuclear power. But it's really kind of claim to fame is it can be enriched and placed in a nuclear weapon. So it has power that's unfathomable. I mean, it's just incredible. And I'm watching it. My undergrad was in chemistry and biology. And so I'm just like, this is un, this is the best documentary ever. And while I'm watching it, it hits me. This is the best object lesson ever. And so I get on the internet and I'm like, I should order uranium and I can frame it this way. And, and then just drop the mic, revival breaks out and it happens because everyone's like that object lesson grabbed my heart and I was transformed. So I, I Google and, and like how to order uranium. <laughs> and Turns out you can order uranium through Amazon because you can get everything through Amazon. And so I, I'm 
realize, okay, awesome, Amazon, it, I can get it in two days. Even better, I can practice my object lesson and revival will break out early. And, and so, I, but I'm, I'm smart. I realize you shouldn't just order uranium. It's radioactive. You should get one of those clicky things called Geiger counters. You know, the little things that you see on television. They're like click, 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 click when you get close to radiation so that I can be wise. So I order my Geiger counters skillfully to get there earlier than the uranium prepared. And, and I'm practicing with my Geiger counter and I am so giddy excited. And then I'm sitting on the couch and I get a push notification on my phone. And it says, your uranium has been delivered. I live in an apartment complex on the second floor. I bolt out of the room and run downstairs. And there on the counter is a box with the radioactive label because there's my uranium. I open the thing up. I'm so excited. I open it up. I'm running up the stairs. I bust into the apartment. It's about 8 p.m. Our daughter's asleep. And I'm like, Jenny, my uranium is here. Look at it. I pull it out of the box. I'm so excited. It's this large, large piece of rock with uranium in it. And, uh, and so I turn on my Geiger counter because I'm like, oh, this is going to be the best moment ever. And you remember the clicks per minute thing I told you? The, the, the click, 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 click. Well, this one registered 125,000 clicks per minute. So it goes from being a click to more of a steady hum. And I'm watching the radiation climb and climb and climb. And I realize, oh, my goodness, this should not be legal to ship this to people's houses. Because I have in my hands a hot piece of radioactive uranium. Uh, at that point, I realized I should probably Google, what do you do with a hot piece of uranium? <laughs> so I quickly throw it back in the box because I'm like, this, this is crazy. I'm killing my family. So I seal the box up and I'm like, whew. And I turn on my Geiger counter because I'm like, okay, I'm, I've got this thing under control. I walk about six feet, sit down on the couch, and I'm like, Jenny... I got it under control. Turn on the Geiger counter, and it starts clicking. She's like, Chris, why is that thing clicking over here right beside me? I thought you had it under control. My entire apartment was radioactive. So then I remembered that the microwave cooks food through radiation. Maybe you didn't know that. I did, because I'm smart. So I go and stick the uranium in the microwave thinking I'm protecting our family. I radiate our microwave and I don't protect our family. At this point, I am Googling, what do you do with uranium? My wife is Googling, how do I separate from this moron? And, and what damage does uranium have on a five-year-old, right? That's what's happening in her household. And I'm like, girl, according to Google, if you get a lead box, it protects it. Now, here's the bad news. We don't have a lead box. But here's the good news. We got a box. And I got a metal one. And so I went and grabbed our safe, this little tiny portable safe, and I stuck it inside the safe and um, ran it downstairs and put it in my trunk. Now I'm safe. Poor sucker parking beside me is not, but I am. So I go to bed that night. It's like straight up anxious. I'm thinking about burning my clothes, burning my microwave because I've radiated everything. And I go to sleep with the Geiger counter beside my bed and it's still clicking. <laughs> Comforting, alarm clock. And um, wake up the next morning, go to, 
And in my calendar alert, and I realized, oh my goodness, I have to drive an hour and 10 minutes south. I was like, I'll take my Geiger counter, and I'll sit it beside me all the way down, and maybe I'll be okay. Because it's in a metal box in my trunk, and I got it at the back of my trunk, and I have a long, sweet Buick. I mean, it's, it, you know, 2003, those things are tanks. I'm okay. So I sit down in my Buick, I turn on the Geiger counter as I'm driving, and it's still clicking. I mean, which is, think about the psychological stress of driving down the road, having an hour's drive, and it's just click, 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 click. I was like, I'm dying. I'm like literally watching calendar years being pulled off in this metaphorical thing. I'm like, I think I'm losing actively years of my life right now. And then I see a field, because I'm now in the rural area, and I'm like, I could bury the uranium in the field, and no one will know. And so I'm thinking through, like, how to explain to the state trooper who stops and asks me what I'm doing that I'm burying uranium in the field. And so I decide that's probably not the best idea. And then I keep driving, and then I get towards the Cape. And if you've ever been to Massachusetts, the Cape, there's a lot of cranberry bogs, right? And there's a lot of rivers, and we're near the water. And I was like, I could throw it in a cranberry bog. But then decide that I might kill some people who accidentally drink cranberry juice and decide that's a bad idea. And then I think the river, and I'm like, I could throw it in the river. And then I start having these images in my head of, like, news stories of fish dying and floating to the top and, like, three-eyed fish and people, like, glowing when they sleep because they had seafood. And, and I decide that's probably a bad idea, too. So I drive all the way there, all the way back. It is the longest drive of my life, the most stressful, stressful day I've ever had because the entire time it's clicking at me. And then I finally get home, and as I'm sitting there on the couch, and I'm telling Jenny, this is the worst day of my life. I'm killing you. I'm killing my daughter, and I'm killing me. And, um, and the uranium's still in my trunk. And uh, I get another push notification that says, your second uranium has been delivered. So what I didn't tell you was because I thought this was going to be the best object lesson ever. I ordered two just to make sure I had some good uranium with me. So now I have an even hotter piece of uranium downstairs. And all I can think is all the people walking by in my apartment building glowing. So I put that in my trunk, too, in the safe. And I am... At this point, I'm sure, starting to ping some government's agency censors. And that week was the, one of the most stressful weeks of my life because I felt everywhere I was going, I was just internally dying from the radiation I was exposing myself to. And there was nowhere safe. My house was still radioactive a couple days later. My microwave was still radioactive a couple days later. And my poor car was almost glowing on the back end. And in the midst of that week, I found someone uh, uh, that had the facility to handle that kind of toxic waste. And one of the most freeing moments I had was walking into the post office, wrapping it up, um, and responding to the person, is there any hazardous material in this box? And I went, radioactive. I'm sorry, what? It's radioactive. Oh, okay. And... I was able to send, and seriously, walking out of that post office, knowing that box had been sent to a facility with people who were trained who could handle it, I walked out feeling lighter because I had just gotten something incredibly toxic out of my life, and I felt free. 
And here's the reality of what Jesus understood that day is Jesus understood that we have something far more toxic in our lives than some rock of uranium stuck in our trunk. That he knew that sin and death would destroy us. And it does destroy us. And that he was the only one capable of stepping into our lives and handling that toxic material without it destroying him so that we could have life. And in that, there was freedom unlocked for us. And if you're in this room and you are a Christian, then you have had the worst toxic thing ever removed from you. Death has been dissected, surgically removed, and life has been implanted inside of you. And if you're in this room today and you don't have that faith, then we serve a God who can step in and remove the most toxic thing from your life. That's who he is, and that's what he does in this moment. He understands there is a power present in him that was different than anything else anyone had ever seen, and that same power is present in you if you follow Jesus, which means as a people, we look at the world differently. Everyone else sees a funeral procession, sees a coffin. We actually know that there is a power dwelling in us that could make this moment a celebration because while death is present in the room, we serve a God who brings life. We can actually be people who walk into others' worlds. And while they see hopelessness, we say, I know someone who brings hope. We can step into a couple's life who thinks their marriage is dying and is dead, and we can say, but there is a God who can bring resurrection. That we can step into a friend's life, a neighbor's life, who's bound by addictions and chains that they can't break and say, oh, but I know one who can break chains. That someone who's weighed down with guilt and shame, that we can say, oh, I know someone who exchanges guilt and shame for grace and peace. That's the implication. Because in verse 15, the strangest sentence that has ever been written was written when it says that the dead man sat up and began to speak. That is a strange sentence. And the challenge is that you and I perhaps have been around church enough that we don't see that as strange. And it's not because we understand it. Because it's not normal for dead men to sit up and speak. But we are a people who, when we're moved for compassion towards the one and we step into their life and bring the power of the risen son, God can write strange sentences in their life. That a dead marriage that's now alive and vibrant, a former addict that is now free, That's the God we serve. That is the hope living in you if you know Jesus. And that's the hope held out for you if you're here and you don't. That we serve a God who brings resurrecting power and can write strange sentences in your life. And then you see the pivot for how this section wraps up when it says that people were seized with fear and they glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole Judea and the surrounding countryside that what was done for one starts to impact everyone. That that compassion towards someone started to ripple and impact and radiate out to everyone. 
that people start to hear about what Jesus has done in the life of this one person, a person that society would have overlooked and checked out and disengaged with, someone that society would have ignored because this woman was now disenfranchised. She was an outsider. And Luke, who was an outsider, says, no, 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 that's not who our God is. Our God cares about those who are outside. And in demonstrating his love and his compassion to someone, that care to someone allowed it to be shared to everyone. Because that's how he does it. He realizes that the power of a person understanding that God cares ripples out to others around them. And all of Judea and countryside, everyone begins to talk about it. So tonight, and as awards are being given out, on one of the short lists for a movie uh, is this movie called Hacksaw Ridge. I'm not making any kind of endorsements of movies, uh, but the story of Hacksaw Ridge is incredibly fascinating. It's a story that for, for a long time was not allowed to be told because the person who was part of the story said, you are only allowed to share my story if you share it accurately. And so Mel Gibson, when he made this movie, had to, to basically agree that he captured all the details of the story of this life accurately. So it's, when, it, when you see uh, based on a true story, it's not based on the true story. It is the true story played out on your screen. And Hacksaw Ridge is the name of this location that became this pivotal moment in World War II. It's, it was the, the spot, the location that the strategists saw as the way to get Okinawa and Japan. And it became the bloodiest battle in the Pacific theater of World War II. Because Hacksaw Ridge, this spot, was a 400-foot sheer cliff face riddled with Japanese machine gunners and booby traps. And the military began to press to try to take it. And it was kind of seen as a near impossible mission that turned into an impossible mission for this battalion that Private Desmond Doss was a part of. And as the machine gunners started to ripple and as bodies began to fall, the battalion commander screamed, retreat. And Desmond Doss, who was a medic, who had been ridiculed, humiliated, picked on because he was a seven-day Adventist who was a conscientious objector who said, I can't kill anyone. And he refused to carry a gun. And in the midst of retreat being called out for his battalion and everyone started running, he looked on the battlefield and he saw all, all the dying soldiers. And as a medic, he did something extraordinary. You see, Japanese military actually targeted medics because they realized if they kill a medic, they not only have taken care of a soldier, they've also prevented soldiers who are sick or dying from being saved. It's a strategic move for them. Kill the medics too. And Doss pops up as a private and runs straight into the battle. He goes into an act of war zone, machine guns firing, and he grabs the body of one soldier and he pulls him back to safety and he treats him, stabilizes him, and then goes to the edge of the 400-foot cliff and lowers him down single-handedly. And the entire time he's lowering him down 400 feet, he's praying this, Lord, let me save one more. And when the body hits the bottom of the ravine and he's safe, 
he runs back into the war zone, and he grabs another soldier, and he carries him back. He stabilizes him, takes him to the edge of the cliff, and lowers him down single-handedly again, all the while saying, Lord, let me save one more. He goes back to the active battle zone, grabs another soldier, stabilizes him, and does it again. He does it 75 times. 75 men are trans, their lives transform. People alive today that would not be alive because of the prayer of one man saying, Lord, let me save one more. You see, when we're willing to demonstrate compassion for one and we show them the power of the risen son, then when God's work is done in that moment, we can go back and say, Lord, let me save one more. And in the end, when we as a people are committed to demonstrating that care to someone, God starts to show up and everyone starts to hear. And for some of us in this room, there's a one in your life right now that you've been compassionate toward, that you felt called to. And that one that you've been called to, that one that stirs your heart, that breaks your heart, is because the God of the universe is inviting you to be a part that in the battlefield of sin and death in the world that we live, that we are the medics and the missionaries who, who go out and bring life in a landscape of death. And then we take them to the one who brings life and we pray, Lord, let me save one more. And this church has done that for 150 years. And I believe that this church awakened to that prayer has not even begun to imagine what the next 150 years could look like. And to wrap it up today, I want to show you a video that the IMB has put together that I think just puts some feet to how do you, how do I be a part of making a difference for one that leads to everyone. 